You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. And Nick Chater. Uh, Morton is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Psychology at Cornell University, as well as Professor in Cognitive Science of Language at Aarhus University in Denmark. Uh, Nick, who's been on the podcast before, is a professor of behavioral science at Warwick University. Uh, he talked to us about his book, The Mind is Flat. Uh, they've co-authored a new work. It's called The Language Game, How Improvisation Created Language and Changed the World. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Morton and Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, Thank you for having lovely me. to be here. So I'm hoping we can start the discussion with a point you make actually at the end of the book in the epilogue. You're talking about AI and this idea of singularity, which is the point at which artificial intelligence exceeds human intelligence. This concept has like many people concerned, especially lately. Um, but you note that, quote, computers haven't joined the human conversation and then you go on to say, quote, they have no more understanding of language than a jukebox, ha- jukebox has of the songs it's playing, end quote. All right. So can you unpack that for me a little bit? And Nick, I'll go with you first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I mean, this this is a, a, an issue that becomes ever, ever more pre- pre- pressing as um, various versions of GPT and its uh, its kin become ever more impressive. Uh, but I think our, and so one can, I think, get lured into thinking, Wow, these these things must just understand because look, they just do such amazing things, um, and I think that that is a real, really a fundamental mistake. So what we're sa- what we're saying in the language game is we're saying that if the human drive to communicate really precedes language, <clears throat> and what's what's driving it is this amazing ability to jointly reason and think about what arbitrary signals can mean or what uh, what's you know, sometimes less arbitrary, the iconic um, signal. So I'm trying to uh, convince convince you that I'm I'm uh, signaling some particular movie title, and I do some strange action, which I'm you know, it's King Kong or uh, something. Um, then I I only have to flail around in vaguely the right direction, and you kind of know where I'm going. You think, well, that's supposed to be a you know, supposed to be a gorilla. Oh, it's supposed to be sort of swiping at some aircraft. Oh, that's that's King Kong. Um, and so it's it's assuming that we've got this very rich natural tendency to try to make sense of each other's behavior as, as communicative and and of course once you've got some of those signals those 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 gestures you can then reuse them and change them and modify them for new cases and if you do that lots of times particularly with the same people you're going to start 
Um, they're going to become more and more conventionalized and standardized. And you're going to get something that looks, starts to look like a language. I mean, in this case, a gestural sign language. Um, but if the, the, the same story would go for, for spoken languages. So uh, the, for, for us, natural language, language speak is this kind of incredibly sophisticated, but um, sort of veneer on this underlying communicative engine which is driving us to try to make sense of, of each other and and usually though the veneer look is is is, is complicated and has a you know, rich syntax and so on actually you still need that big communicative engine underneath because everything we say is so massively ambiguous and so much depends on the context and what we just said and you, know, you any anything we any name we mention or anything we talk about this we have to have all this common understanding, which are the engine is churning away, thinking, you know, which John's that? And when you say that the word you know, set, say, whatever, is this a set of tennis or is it a set, a set in mathematics or what, other, what kind of set? And all of that stuff is just going on automatically. Now, you know, none of these large language models, GPT-3 uh, or any other, they're, they're, not, they're not in that game at all. They haven't got a communicative engine. They're not trying to express themselves. They're not thinking, you know, I, I've got something I want to communicate here and I'm trying to do it. They're, what they're doing something completely different. They're, they're taking the output that we have produced, this vast splurge of, of language which we've generated across the web, and of course all these you know, computer programs and so on that we've created, and they're hoovering that up and finding patterns in it. And that's just like an amazing thing. They're finding patterns which are you know, amazingly sophisticated. Um, and that's allowing them to complete the patterns. So you know, here's a bit of conversation, here's a bit more. Here's a bit of a story, here's a bit more. It's, it's incredibly good. There's no, there's no engine trying to drive the process forward. There's no, there's no desire to communicate because there's nothing to communicate. Um, so I think it's, it's just like a complete sort of category mistake to think um, these are you know, what in some sense what's GPT three four or you know, one day ten what's mm-hmm. it understanding and what's it trying to what's it trying to say? It's not trying to say anything. It's just it's just a pattern completing machine of an unbelievable cleverness. I mean, I to, to, to say I am. Personally, I think what we feel the same. Completely astounded by what's right. been achieved by these models would be an understatement. I am just amazed, but I just don't think they are not. They're not. They're not communicating with us, and we're not communicating with them. They're not. They've not joined the conversation. So, Martin, one of the things. So, my fields are comedy and improvisation, and uh, in both instances, we have been uh, asked or tasked or brought in to work with, um, I'll just say robots, but but these different kinds of these models. And the two things I know is um, they're not funny. Uh, They can tell, they have learned to tell a joke, which is one kind of comedy. And most of their jokes are puns, which is the easiest kind of comedy. So no sort of transformation. They can't do physical comedy. The whole world is not, not open to them. And they can't improvise, in part because what we discover when we're improvising is we're tapping into our divergent thinking. We're undoing patterns as opposed to the other because that's the surprise and that's the funny thing. So I'm just wondering from your sort of point of view and where you sit in this conversation, you know, wh- wh- what do you see? Is there is there a worry? Is there not a worry? What's interesting yeah. about it to you? Yeah, I mean, just like Nick and what we say in the book, I mean, I, I think in, in a sense, the part of the impressive impressiveness actually comes from the fact that they are sort of parasitic on um, all the work that we are doing as humans when we are communicating with one another. So when we are engaging in a conversation, we are trying to sort of try to figure out what the other person is trying to say. And in doing that, we we built on what we in the book called the communication iceberg, namely the, the notion that the words, the phrases, the sentences are really just the tip of a communication iceberg. And underneath that is knowledge of uh, you know, the 
cultural knowledge, uh, factual knowledge, knowledge about how we tend to interact, you know, the more more uh, social norms, etc., and all that stuff. These models are really not not aware of, and that actually comes through when, if you try to apply the models to say other languages. So, for example, I have I have a part time position in Denmark, and some of my colleagues there have been looking at whether there, whether they. GPT-3, when it does Danish, whether it's sensitive to some of the unique cult- cultural aspects of sort of Danish life and so on, and it's not. So it will make all sort of, you know, cultural faux pas and so on that uh, it, that would be work fine in, in, say, in the US, but wouldn't work in Denmark simply because the differences in culture. So all that kind of information is stuff that we sort of bring to bear on a communicative interaction and that they're sort of missing that. So they can't really do this uh, improvisation to the same degree that we can. Having said that, though, one of the things that I've been doing is actually been working with these models to try to make them produce poetry, which is sort of thought of as sort of one of the sort of pinnacles mm-hmm. of linguistic creativity. And I have to say, they're actually pretty good. <laughs> and so we we are sort of making GPT three or three point five or whatever the version is now to uh, create, for example. Poetry in the style of Shakespeare, Lord mm-hmm. Byron, um, Claude McKay, um, uh, Walt Whitman, Gertrude Stein, or Emily Dickinson. And they actually, I mean, what they produce is pretty good. Some of it is sort of just pure plagiarism, but some of it is actually quite good. And so this shows the power of pure pattern completion, as Nick was mentioning earlier. What they're really good at is picking up on patterns, including patterns in how we write and sort of kind of reproduce that. But they're not really engaging in this sort of back and forth that is sort of crucial and, and fundamental to sort of human communication. And we have to give them a bit of the break on the Danish because, I mean, like human beings aren't great at it either, as we've talked about in your book. Yeah, that is true. That Danish is sort of a bit of a puzzle and um, which is something I've been working on, and it's you know quite exciting. But nonetheless, sort of the the cultural part, they ought to fit. Uh, also, sorry, the cultural part, they ought to be able to uh, sort of at least capture the degree that humans can. But because they're not really trained up on that, um, they're sort of missing that bit. And going so, back to your point about jokes, Kelly, I mean the yeah, uh, yeah the, the 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 fact is that you know, humans have created jokes as a form, and the ones that tend to be out there on the web are presumably, you know, funny enough that people are repeating them to each other. Yep. So there's, there's a kind of a human achievement. And then the, 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 the GPT-3's trick is finding patterns in those jokes and generating more, which, you know, fit those patterns. But GPT-3 could just as well have done anything, right? I mean, if you, if you, if you created some, you know, sequence of words, uh, with any kind of, um, logic whatsoever, you know, let's say, let's, let's put words in alphabetical order or let's have, you know, lots of palindromes or whatever you like, you know, it's going to think, okay. Yeah, you've put those on uh, in the in, in the corpus. I'll learn that structure. I'll do that too. It doesn't care, right? It's not. Mm. It doesn't think. It's not like it's thinking. Oh, these are really funny. And here's an even funnier one. It's just by it's just taking the patterns you give it, and it will give them back to you. And it's really good at it. But because we're sort of pattern finding systems ourselves, we see those patterns. We think, well, clearly there's intelligence behind this. It's a bit like you're know, thinking the it's the sort of blind watchmaker problem. You 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 see see a watch and think someone made it, and then you see a beetle and you think, well, clearly someone made that too. And you see this this joke, and it's kind of not too bad. Well, yeah, clearly an intelligent being created that, but mm. really it didn't. It's um, it's it's a it's an amalgam of of past jokes, and we made them right. They, they didn't come from nowhere. Interesting. All right, so l- let's talk a bit about before your research, before your book, 
for so this idea of where did people think language came from? And, and you talk about this metaphor of someone sort of chiseling it from a single block of raw marble, which gives the idea that there is this that it just exists, that it's already there. And then we're 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 extracting it. Can you talk a bit more about what what that? And this is like Noam Chomsky, right? And even Steve Pinker and people like that. Is there one? Yeah. So so I mean, it's been a long-standing uh, tradition that that somehow language is sort of built into the mind, that it's sort of pre-existing in some form that uh, exists in the mind, and. Um, and sort of that's the notion of it's it's already there and needs to be sort of chiseled out uh, by chipping away on on some f- uh, and, and finding the underlying structure uh, mm-hmm. in language. However, when you look at language sort of more generally, and in, in particular when you look at the amazing diversity of languages that we see across the across the world, there's more than seven thousand different languages, and there's all sort of different ways in which people use. Um, Various various components to sort of indicate differences in meaning. So some languages like Chinese have tones, others have clicks. Then of course we have sign language that doesn't use either of those. Um, and then you have languages where 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 something that seems to be fundamental to to the way we think about language, like having nouns and verbs and adjectives and adverbs, where, where they don't seem to exist as well. But there doesn't seem to be any differences between them. So a language like straight sailors up in Canada. That does seem to be the case there. So what you see is just an amazing diversity across uh, languages that doesn't quite fit with this notion that it's all sort of just one kind of system that Chomsky initially uh, envisaged. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, the the, um, the, the when we started working on um, language together, which is a long time ago now, this was you know, the very early 90s, uh, when we were both uh, graduate students and beyond in, in Edinburgh. And after that, we've been working together ever since. Um, the, the, then the sort of received view was that languages had common patterns, really deep common patterns across all languages. So it was sort of stylized mystery fact. It's like, well, how is it that all these languages, they all have these deep common universal patterns? And one possible explanation for that would be, of course, the universal grammar idea, the idea that there's a grammar which is built into each child and that's genetics in somehow wired into the brain. And each language is a kind of variation on that pattern. That pattern in one particular version was that there's a sort of set of parameters that that universal grammar has, and learning a language is kind of tuning those parameters. But it turned out it's just not a stylized fact at all. Uh, it's a kind of fantasy stylized fact. It's because you know, people hadn't really looked very closely at many languages, or those, or at least the people producing the theory, I, um, Chomsky and the people close to Chomsky, were primarily focusing on English and well, you know, one or two other languages, but. If you look at more uh, at languages which are much further away from English, they they have you know, all kinds of extraordinary and really rich and diverse patterns, and so that's you know it's just a kind of a, a, a deep sort of um, empirical fact that you know this kind of universality that was supposed supposedly standing in need of need of explanation was really being imposed. It was kind of like you know every language would be jammed into the the theoretical framework, and then you one would say, "Well, there it is. Here's another one, another one with these same patterns." But in fact, yeah, that's just wrong. I mean, it's just empirically you know, it's empirically false. So, um, so that's one thing. And the other related point is that even within a language, um, enormous amounts of the uh, of the complexity of that language don't really fit within the kind of classical. Um, universal grammar type of framework anyway um, there's just enormous amounts of irregularity and sort of semi-regularity and conf- conflicting patterns in languages of 
it's just every language is like this. And so it's, it's, it's a really puzzling thing. If you imagine there's this kind of universal basis to languages, a kind of pure sort of mathematically well-defined structure that every language is supposed to have, which is kind of coming from our genes, then you'd think languages would be both similar to each other, but also they'd be kind of neat, tidy things. And they're just a complete mess at every level. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes much more sense if they've got to grown organically from the bottom up. But if they're kind of being driven top down, it's just a very, it's very puzzling. And, and the way to, to, to get to sidestep that problem, if you're taking a universal grammar perspective, is to say, ah, oh, well, all of these, this messy stuff, now these are, these are just sort of um, marginal cases. They're really important things in language. And just they're, they're, the, they're the things that are deep and important, are universal. And all this other stuff is, you know, not very important. And I mean, a linguist that we're both very, very impressed with, Peter Culliker, has a style of argument which I think undermines this but pretty tremendously where he says well look if 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 child's got to learn all this messy stuff so if he can learn all this messy quasi-regular stuff then learning the regular stuff is going to be super easy I mean that's just not the problem right if you the 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 complexity of the the complexity of language is all this irregularity Mm -hmm. to any learning system that can figure that out from scratch can easily figure out the, uh, the, the any underlying deep irregularities that's that's trivial by comparison so then the whole motivation for having this kind of universal blueprint starts to sort of crumble into the dust i think and of course and you have another you might want might, might to say something about this more but there's also a sort of gpt3 type of it point here isn't there that um yes you know, yeah, in, give that yeah, idea. Fact that the, the fact that they that when you look at the output of GPT-3 or chat GPT and so on, that even though sometimes they can be, you know, they can say things that are nonsensical or doesn't quite make sense, but crucially, pretty much always it's grammatical. So what you have here, you have a system that actually is, is exceptionally good in producing grammatical language, yet clearly there's no universal grammar inside of these models. There's no pre-built rules or anything like that was uh, similar to what was actually originally um, suggested by Chomsky's, uh, Chomsky and others. So what this suggests is that we have sort of an existence proof that just essentially vacuuming up loads and loads of words, uh, doing pattern completion over it can allow a system, a learner, uh, a silicon one in this case, to uh, produce fully grammatical language. Now, the meaning part and the communicative part, that's missing. But the grammatical part can be done without uh, any kind of building grammar. It's funny to think of, uh, you know, I'll talk to tons of people in, in, in business, but also professors. And, you know, this idea that almost every business problem is a communication problem. And, and the idea that, that somehow that's not messy, like not like we can barely talk to each other and understand what's happening in any given situation and circumstance. And we get it wrong so much more than we get it right. This, and I know the hindsight, right? It seems so obvious now. And, and of course didn't before. And I know you talk in the book uh, to Alan Alda, who we had in the podcast, who studied with second city. And even before that with Viola Spolin, um, who created all these exercises, the, the improv games that we have been teaching for years and still, and she was a social worker. She was literally working with immigrant children and kids on the South side of Chicago and bringing them in to teach them how to empathize and communicate. And a lot of her exercises and the ones that we still teach today are silent or in gibberish because the kids didn't share language, but they could communicate. So it's like, it's, it's feels very like, um, and talk a little bit about like, I, of course, Nick, I know you're not a stranger to improvisation, uh, but uh, where you see, sort of see that fit in, especially when you talk to Alan and the work he's doing at Stony Brook. 
Well, I'll, I'll say a bit about the improvisation thing. Um, I mean, I think the there's actually two two points that are interesting here. I mean, one is that the mind is in general an improviser. So, um, I mean, this is the yeah, this is something that Morton and I have thought about in the context of language a lot. And I, and the mind is flat. To give it a yes. plug, uh, the old mind is flat from 2018. I mean, that's really the theme of that book. Um, but it's, it's it's really built into the kind of thing that Morton and I have been thinking about for for a long time. Um, so the idea that that um, that, that, that instead of, we shouldn't be thinking of ourselves as cons- consulting a kind of fixed theory of grammar or a fixed theory of human nature. It's not that I have a fixed understanding of how people work or how the physical world works. Uh, I mean, the world is far too complicated and the language is too complicated and other people are too complicated for me to have a theory of them. That's just not the way we work. Um, so the miracle of you know, human ability to skate on the thin ice of um, you know, this complexity is, is that we are continually improvising um, dealing with creating new solutions based primarily on um, similar cases we've dealt with before. So we're thinking, well, here's a weird new situation. It's a little bit like these other other ones. And I, in that, those cases, I kind of did this. So let's try this. Um, and if you ask the question, is that going to be completely consistent? Is that going to deal with every possible case? No, it isn't. It's, it's You're muddling through. You're coping with the situation you're in right now. The world is too complicated to have a model of, it, of the whole thing. Um, so that's the, so just the general point that we you know, Im- improvisation isn't a kind of um, it isn't a kind of a, a poor surrogate where the ideal scenario would be to fig- figure everything out and have a perfect plan. The world the world is never never going to allow you to do that because it's too complicated. You're always going to be improvising. And then the other thing is that a, mo- a lot of the time, in fact, most of the interesting things humans do, we're doing together as we are now. But in mm-hmm. almost all of our lives, we're, we're doing things together. So we're improvising jointly. And one of the things we've got to do in, in doing improvising jointly is, is coordinate our behavior. We've got to you know, do things that mesh in a logical way so we're, you know, not as we're tripping over each other. And of course, communication is, you know, is, is a crucial, essential part of that. So this process of you know, thinking, um, improvising our communication and improvising our joint behavior, that's you know, fundamentally you know, fundamental to what humans do. Um, and, I, and I think actually it's really... It may, it may not be unique to humans, but it's really distinctive of humans versus other other species. We're just really, really, you know, deeply joint creatures. We spend a huge amount of time spending our you know, other lives doing things together and talking to each other, um, in which where there's no real equivalent of that in in, in other species. But the um, the, other, the whole final thing um, that always strikes me as interesting here is that I think we're the, the kind of classic view of language um, from the sort of early cognitive science and early linguistics days, it sort of sees language as fundamentally a, a way of encoding information. So the idea is that we have these thoughts and the thoughts are possibly represented in some logical language or system. And now they're, they're kind of clear. The thoughts yeah. are clear. And then your thoughts are clear too. And I've just got to get some thoughts to you and I'm going to do it by, as we're bottling some up in a bit of packaging some up in in a in a, in, in some language, I'm going to send it to you as if I'm sending you a, a a packet of information over a computer network. But really, that's a mistake because my thoughts are not clear, and your thoughts aren't clear either. And in, in the, the process of communication, it kind of is the it is it, that improvisation is a large part of thinking. So rather than think rather than thinking, well, I know exactly what message I'm trying to send. Um, and you know, I'm not, how am I going to do it? Most of the time, it's a sort of joint. You know, the process of figuring out what to say is kind of also just doing the thinking in the first place, and it is never clear. It's always, it's always, it's always an improvised and to some extent muddled, um, and never gets. You know, everything can be probed. Everything can be um, 
prodded, everything can be clarified, but never completely. There's that that, that process of you know, sort of improvisation and 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 refinement and hitting new barriers and clashes. That's just the way it goes. And so I think the 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 the, the perspective we often have as human beings, I think certainly um, is that oh, communication is blooming difficult. If only we could solve it. Like as if we could solve it as a, as a you know, just by being better at communicating, we just, you know, this, the barriers would be fall down. But that's just a complete mistake because it's just inevitably difficult because it's a bit like thinking, you know, decision making. Oh dear. If we could just fix that. I mean, like, how could that ever be? You know, the world is you know, infinitely complicated. There's no, there's no solution to the question of you know, how to make good decisions in every situation. And there's no solution to the question of, yeah, how to perfectly communicate. It's just an endless struggle of being a human being is that we, you know, we fight this battle afresh every day. This is this is the thing, and, and more. And I want to talk to you about, about, about this because it's funny. Um, I read so many business books, and and so many are like, "This is the the seven points to secure yourself uh, for life or business." Like, there there are so many different contexts that n- you could never have one theory that would cover everything at any given time. And I was right before we started taping, I was on another person's podcast, and we were talking about. The difficulty people have with listening. And she said, could you play an improv exercise with me to help me with that? And so the one that I did with her is called Last Word. And it's very simple. We, we started a conversation. The only rule for each of us is that we need to start our sentence with the last word the other person said. So it's as simple as listening to the end of a sentence. But then also the game we're trying to win here is one in which you say that word and you maybe pause reflectively to find the way it might fit inside the conversation. And we actually ended up having probably a deeper conversation at that moment than we would have had I been planning the smart thing that I needed to say halfway through what she was saying, which is kind of what, what we do. So Martin, Martin, can you talk more on, on, on that and, and how we communicate? Yes. And that's actually, I, I can imagine that actually, Initially, that's actually a quite hard exercise to do hard. because one, one of the things that happened during normal conversation is that the, the time between turns, between I finish saying something and you will start uh, saying something is, is actually on average, and this is across languages and across cultures, is about a quarter of a second. And what that, me- what that means is that we actually have to try to prepare what we want to say before the other person have already finished their turn because... If I was to ask you to, uh, for example, if I was to show you a picture of, say, cat, and all you have to do is say cat, that would take you about 600 milliseconds to do that. So what it means is that you have to prepare and start thinking about what you're going to be saying before I finish what I'm saying. Hmm. And so doing that, so it's a good exercise because it it sort of kind of forces us to get out of this normal mode of very rapid uh, turn-taking, sort of rapid-fire interaction, which is sort of the normal way of of interacting. And And I think... It, it, it another aspect of it is also that surprisingly that a lot of this study of language has been focusing essentially on language as monologue, which of right. course is not how we use it actually to communicate. And so it's been treating it as such. And then, and, and, and of course, on the, as a monologue, we typically have time to prepare it and think about it or write or something, but in actual real life turn-taking, we have to, we have to be really fast at responding because otherwise Essentially, if I hesitate a little bit, then that's an opening for you to sort of start saying whatever you want to say. And sort of, there's something about sort of holding the floor, as it were, in terms of interacting. Um, and, but on the flip side, we also, it means that we have to engage with the other person. We have to sort of try to think about, okay, what is it the other person is trying to tell me? How can I, oh, and also 
um, how can I best express myself so that you can understand? And and importantly, in normal conversation, we have a lot of devices, conversational devices that we can use to make sure we are understanding we are understanding one another. So, for example, one of the things we do is uh, we tend to nod or we say mm-hmm and so on. Of course. The, the listeners can't actually see us nodding right now or anything right. like that. But that's something we use. It's called back channeling. We use that all the time. It's like almost uh, every uh, every minute or so there's a nod or there's uh-huh and something like that. And another thing we can do is, of course, sometimes things go awry. So the conversation, so I misunderstand something you're trying to say and so on. So I can you ask for a repair. I can ask you to what did you say? Who did did you did you mean this and that? And we do that also very often. So we can we use these to sort of keep making sure that we are sort of engaging with one another in the right kind of way. But you don't really see that when you see monologue on television or in books and so on. And that's so. So what we so what the impression that we get is that language is much neater than it actually is when it's really messy in when we're using it in in the right in and sort of in uh, in in natural in a natural way like we're doing now, sort of interacting, sort of uh, real time, as it were. So there's an interesting uh, uh, story at Second City. Um, David Mamet uh, was a busboy. Uh, this is back in like 19 in the 60s, and in part because Second City creates its shows through improvisation, almost always the characters that they create on stage are speaking like human speak, and they're they're they're, they're so they're not. We don't do a lot of parody, so there's not a lot of sort of accents or or big wacky characters that sort of thing. And so Mamet, who was known certainly in his early career for this naturalistic dialogue that people found incredible, he's talked about this before because I've, I've gone to talks that he's given where he's like, yeah, but I mean, I was just, I was kind of parroting what I saw happening at Second City and I had a real connection with people. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And that was so new to the theater because I think prior to that, the theater operated in very much like monologue, monologue, monologue. And then sort of as contemporary theater evolves, as, as you know, our understanding of language or, or whatever, he found a different way to replicate something that felt like, oh, no, that's kind of how people talk. And it's awkward. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that's very interesting, isn't it? That, um, it, yes, the, 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 it's actually a major innovation um, to present back to us on stage yeah. the way we actually are. And that's kind of weird. You think that would be the obvious thing to do because like without, without, as it were, thought, um, when we do that naturally. But of course, it's not the case because the person writing the play is not there in a dialogue. So if you're making a play in an in a, in a, in a improvised way, you're doing that you know, through workshopping, then you're going to produce yeah. something of a very different style because that then has now indeed fed back to the way um, the way writers write, and of course, you know, an awful lot of corporate realistic screen drama absolutely has that character, doesn't it? Although, you know, actually, much less so than you think. We really sort of think much less so than you oh, think. That's yeah, yeah, thing. you think. Well, that's so like they're just like real people. But then, hang on, yeah, that was a whole paragraph of quite fluent English. I don't hear that from many people very often. Yeah, but still, yeah, we, we've clearly we've clearly been influenced in that direction. Um, and and this just this general point about monologue. Um, being being treated as basic is just so so um distorting in our perspective on what language is i mean going back to the point about the messiness of language if you started off with transcripts of people just burbling on you'd never think oh there's this you know there's this universal grammar there's this incredibly um, tidy structure but but when you as it were look at very very um, sophisticated um highly uh, stylized written text, then that you know, they have more of this characteristic. But of course, they do because 
we're actively imposing that on them as as, as sort of thoughtful writers. It's not the it's not the it's not the groundwork. I mean, the ground again, going back to the thing we were saying at the beginning, the the, the, the groundwork of, of of human language is this yeah is, is this drive to just get stuff across to people in the moment by whatever means possible, and that will include sort of noises and gestures and facial expressions and all 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 kinds of other stuff, whatever does the job, and trying to I'm thinking of sort of a, what is essentially a um, a very stylized art form um, of written language, and then and viewing that as the as the prototype is a you know it's, it's a kind of bizarre inversion of of what you'd imagine would happen. But that's the way the psychology of language went from you know sort of nineteen fifties and sixties onwards for for some decades. Morton, can you tell us about? I got a real kick out of the Thomas Schelling uh, experiment about meeting uh, a stranger tomorrow in New York City with no way of contacting them. Can you talk about that experiment and then how that relates to the uh, the book? Sure. I mean, so so Thomas Schelling, he was, you know, got, got a uh, Nobel Prize in economics, I uh, forget when it was, uh, a few years ago. But uh, a lot... A lot of his work was essentially about negotiation and how uh, we can sort of uh, find common ground or what he called focal points. And and so he actually did some some interesting sort of kind of experiments with his students in New York City where they had to sort of meet up. And and so you might think that if, if you were to sort of if I was to ask you, you know, pick a space time location tomorrow in New York City, that that's impossible because it's like. I can't remember how many square miles New York City is, but it's yeah. huge, or five bars, like, like millions of people and so on. It, it's impossible. Now, if I instead ask you to, and this is what Shelling did, if I ask you to sort of come up with a place that somebody else that is just like you, somebody sitting next to you might also find. Uh, and so what you're, trying to, what you're trying to do is you're trying to think, okay, what might another person who might be thinking sort of r- roughly along the same line, lines as me or have the sort of same kind of cultural background, where might they potentially want to meet me? And so what comes to mind are sort of what Schelling calls these focal points or sort of optimal solutions uh, or near optimal solutions, such as 12 noon Grand Central Station or 12 yeah. noon Times Square. No, what you wouldn't say would be something like, you know, 2.47 a.m. Uh, uh, on the corner of, you know, 47th Street and some other avenues or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know New York that well, so I can't really <laughs> give good uh, directions there. Um, and, and so, and he did some some other experiments that were sort of similar to that. And he actually made his student go out, do this. And, and you know, many kind, times they would actually meet up. And and so what that suggests is that there that if we sort of are, trying to come up with solutions that other people like ourselves might also come up with. It's much easier to coordinate in that way, even if we just have to guess. And that's sort of the point of that. And what we are suggesting is that language is a lot like that, that when kids are sort of entering into the language, it's not like there's, there's just random stuff for them to learn. What they have to learn is something that other people just like themselves have created and they have the same kind of limitations or constraints uh, imposed on them. And so when, when, children are making guesses about what to say in what situation um they're making guesses that are pretty good in in a sense they're making in in uh sort of guesses that are analogous to sort of time uh, 12 noon at times uh, central uh, uh square no Times square or uh, grand central station that's what they're uh, doing and so what we are suggesting is that by following in each other's footstep uh, that actually makes language acquisition much easier than what 
was previously thought, where it was thought to be sort of a logical problem. How could children learn language when it's so messy? We just talked about how messy language uh, is when it's so messy and there's so many com uh, sort of complications to it. How could they ever learn to speak sort of fluent language? But they do, and they do because they, they're essentially trying to, to do the same thing as other people who came before them who are just like themselves. Hmm. Yeah. So it, when I was reading this, it also made me think a bit about, I've interviewed a few different people who talk about the way generational trauma lives in the body. And this, this idea that for, you know, uh, centuries, the, these sort of things can, it can sort of exist. And so it, it seemed akin a little bit in terms of like, well, you know, it's, it's, it, this stuff evolves and stays with us. And, and I, I think you write in the book something about, um, uh, yeah, you said, quote, how are children able to improvise in just the right way to join in with linguistic charades? The solution is beautifully simple. Every current speaker was a child once. So it's simply about the fact that we're all part of this sort of human journey and this, this sort of linking, which quite frankly feels a little more elegant than, than the, the, the ideas that sort of were, were thrown around before. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually curious, Nick, like, are you getting blowback on this? Are like, are, are people in your community being like, no, you got it wrong? Well, I think, I mean, it, it is a slightly riven field, the, the cognitive science of language. So there are unquestionably, there are, um, there are supporters of the, what once upon a time was the dominant view that, um, you know, Universal grammar is uh, in each child, and the, all languages have a common pattern, and so on. But I think that that simply isn't the dominant view anymore. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not just us, right? There's just yep. a, there's just been a general, general revolution in the field, and it's not really. Um, it's said there've been different kinds of approaches in linguistics, construction grammar in particular, which is a much looser, um, more bottom-up style of grammar, which is just doesn't really have the same characteristics as the as the, the Chomsky style grammar. That's just you know, very much more dominant now. All these huge advances in um, computational language have just changed the the story. I mean, the, the story that well, this empiricist strategy of learning language from the bottom up it could absolutely never work. Couldn't even learn the most trivial thing. But actually, look, you know, here's GPT three learning the whole of the syntax of language. Yeah, it's pretty much um, completely perfectly. But there's just so many things um, that have that have shifted. Um, so I I think the yeah, I mean I think what we're doing now is pretty mainstream. Yeah, um, it certainly wasn't mainstream, and in our in our working lives, it has flipped from right. being a kind of slightly you know, far out to being kind of the the, the, the mainstream position. But I, I think I think we, I mean, of course, there's going to be blowback. There is there is blowback, but um, I think much less than we would perhaps anticipate. I don't know what you think, Morton. Yes, I mean, it certainly has changed quite dramatically from when we started uh, working on these kind of things. That um, it seems that um, that. Yeah, yes, it, it really it really has changed that um, the as, as essentially as we're learning more about how children actually acquire language, you know, just how good learners they are. Mm -hmm. And as we know much more about the kind of variety of patterns that are in language itself. So when so using computational me means we can sort of analyze and finding all sort of clues that kids can use to figure out what is meant and so on. And as we are becoming much better at creating computational models like GPT-3 that can uh, learn aspects of language. So it's sort of kind of shifting that we can actually show now that actually, look, kids can learn this. Here's the information available in the input. And actually there are sort of simple computational systems that can actually pick up on this. And so now we're beginning to sh 
to actually show empirically that this idea that was thought to be crazy uh, 30 years ago is actually has some some validity to it and we can actually show that it works. And so I think that's part of what's happened that we're getting much more data that kind of fits this view and that doesn't seem to be consistent with the with the old view. Yeah, it's interesting. I know from 30 years ago, you know, trying to convince companies why they needed to train their, you know, employees to improvise like was work and it is no longer work. We hire people just to pick up the phone with people calling. And then the fact that things like the U S army teaches improvisation and, you know, like you're like, okay, well, I mean, the, the soil has changed. Um, all right, Morton, we always end the podcast for our, um, uh, first time guests. We ask them for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, of course, people's default position is normally to say no or do nothing. And, and yes and is really a nudge to get people to affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten whatever is in front of them. So do you have a yes and story for us? Yes, I do. And, and actually, it's related to some of the things we actually started talking about uh, today, cool. namely uh, GPG-3. So initially in the book, in the in the epilogue, we actually talked about uh, Watson from IBM. And, and we had some discussion of that and some of the limitations on AI and so on. And then my wife uh, came or had come across GPG-3. This was actually two years ago before you know, the, the press really got hold of it or anything yeah. like that. And she was saying, why don't you look into this? And it's like, well, we already written this and it's a nice chapter and so on. And then we looked into it and then Nick and I looked at it and we found actually that this was much more interesting. And it actually turned out to be incredibly uh, like a scoop for for the book in in sense that we, we are able to write about it before it really became very popular. So as when Chat TVT, uh, came out like in November of of last year. You know, suddenly it took off, and the press is mm-hmm. all about it. And now there's a lot of interactions about it. But when we wrote about it, and um, there was much less interest. So we just kind of it was really fortuitous that I you know listened to my wife, yes. and uh, we picked up on this suggestion, and that actually changed that final uh, epilogue in the on the book. I'm going to say yes, ending your spouse. Good move uh, across the board. <laughs> so Nick. Um, you've been on the podcast before and shared a yes and story. You can do that again, or we can challenge you for a thank you because this idea of how do we stay inside a difficult conversation with people? And maybe that's by expressing gratitude and finding a point of connection. Um, so either, do you have one of those st- new stories for us? Yeah, I, I'm going to try a thank you because I'm not sure I handled uh-huh. it very well. So I, I remember giving a talk in Germany, um, on this sort of improvised approach to the mind and being, um, fairly strongly challenged by a very famous economist who I won't name, very, very nice and very clever, very famous uh, economist who was saying, look, you know, I, I, it's just completely obvious that this idea that there's this kind of, we, we don't really know what we want and we're continually trying to figure it out. I mean, how true is that? Because you know, surely what we want is, is bliss. You know, we want perfect happiness. And we know that when we experience it. I mean, we avoid misery. And, and I think what, you know, what planet are you on if you don't think that's, you know, that's what you're, you're, you're aiming for? And, and this was you know, very surprising to me because I thought, well, surely these economists, they just, you know, they, they put this into their models. And this is mostly true, actually, is a mathematical convenience. They have this utility, they put it in a model, and off they go. But they don't actually think, you know, utility, like in my head, and I'm trying to maximize right. it. But this person who's, a, as I say, a very brilliant, remarkable economist, was saying, no, no, that's, that's how it is. And not only is it true for me, it's true for you, and you just don't realize it. I can't understand you. Um, and I, I think... The, the the conversation was really interesting, but but it was it, the the way it evolved was me thinking, wow, that's kind of, you know, that's really interesting. I just yeah, you know, I don't know how how 
How does that work out for you? Let's think about some examples. Like, you know, like, you know what, it, what would it mean to make you really happy? And we went into a strange conversation about, oh, well, obviously, I'd be really, really happy if I could fly. That would be just absolutely fantastic. I'd be so much happier if mm. I could fly. And you think, this is getting crazier and crazier. But the thing that was very interesting, I think, was the sense that you know, by rather than thinking, no, that's wrong, and here's some sort of theoretical reasons why I think you're wrong, it was more like, let's go with that. Let's let's take that somewhere. Yeah, see, yeah. see where it goes. And and when you, when you realize, oh right, so you know, your sense of you know, what you what you want from life is your flying ability. You say, let's let's go in a strange direction. Let's go let's go a bit further. And that, yeah, I, I mean, certainly I came away thinking, okay, I sort of see this person's perspective on what is really really different from mine. Um, and I'd like to think he maybe came away thinking, do I really think that? That seems very odd. Um, but maybe not. Maybe he's really completely happy where he was. But, uh, but it was certainly a really interesting, com- I mean, it stuck with me that conversation, as you can, as you can tell. I love that because it is so in improvisation, we teach about replacing blame with curiosity. And this idea, like, like, let's just be curious and sort of see what happens because you can be surprised. And it's funny, Paul Bloom's, not his most recent book, but his previous book, The Sweet Spot, was all about the fact that we make like having children is not like a happy thing. <laughs> like there's no bliss in that. <laughs> They're just, and getting married and they like all probably the most important things that we do are all riddled with anxiety and, and often grief and trauma and all those things. So that is just so funny that someone would, mm-hmm. that's where they would anchor. But this is why we have the conversations. We're all improvising. Uh, I love the book. It's called The Language Game, How Improvisation Created Language and Changed the World. Morton Christensen and Nick Chater. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great. It's great fun. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Sunset.